In Zechariah 12, in Zechariah chapter 12, and uh, we'll read that chapter in its entirety along with the first verse of chapter 13. Please follow along if you don't have a copy of God's Word. And by the way, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, let me know. We'd love to get you one. We can get you a Bible, no problem. But if you don't have one with you, use the uh, Pew Bible, and page 798, Zechariah 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I'll keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David... In the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemanites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves." On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word.
Well, if we look back up to verse 1, we see this introductory comment, the oracle of the word of the Lord, which introduces the very final section of the book of Zechariah. Uh, We saw that also in chapter 9, I believe, I want to say. Flip there. Yes, chapter 9, the oracle of the word of the Lord. So Zechariah is really split into two main sections with a a middle portion. Uh, The first of those night visions, chapters 1 through 6, 7 and 8, is Zechariah's sermon. And then 9 through the remainder are these two oracles um, uh, spoken concerning Israel. That's what this one says, concerning Israel. The previous oracle was against Israel. Israel's enemies. This is spoken concerning Israel. It's a word for the entire people of God about how he will restore and establish them. Interesting that he doesn't use the term Judah. Uh, Since the nation was divided into two, there's Israel in the north, Judah in the south, the two um, tribes in the south. But instead, God refers to them by the name they used to be known by when they were one people, Israel. And so this is a prophecy about God bringing the people back uh, to what they once were. It's a prophecy about restoration. And that restoration will require two things. God is promising he will do two things in order to restore his people. Here they are. First, he will conquer all. All their enemies. That's the first thing. He promises, I will conquer all your enemies. The second, he will cleanse their hearts. Now, I wonder if that seems like too much. I wonder if Israel thought that was too much. Could God really conquer all their enemies? Well, notice how he prefaces this oracle. Thus declares, this is verse 1, The Lord who stretched out the heavens, who founded the earth, and form the spirit of man. If he made the world, he can remake it too. If he's the one who gives life to man, he can give new life too. Israel's future is in God's hands, and that's the best place for it to be. Is your future in the hand of a God who doesn't want to destroy or condemn you, but wants to restore you? If you're a Christian tonight, then you can say yes and amen. It is. God wants to reconcile me to himself. God wants to restore me to all those things that I lost in Adam. That's what God is doing for the church, for Christians. And we have a picture of that tonight, and it takes two things. Conquers our enemies, and he cleanses our hearts first. The promise to conquer the enemies of God's people. We learn that he will do that by strengthening Israel, yes, the scattered remnant of God's people. He'll strengthen them to such a degree that nobody stands a chance against them. He says, I'm about to make Jerusalem, verse 2, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. And then the next clause refers to the siege against Jerusalem, and the translation there is very difficult. Again, the ESV says, the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Is Jerusalem besieging Judah? Are Jerusalem and Judah also being besieged together? 
I think the ESV is confusing. The King James is better here. Behold, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the peoples around them. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Here's the idea. When the enemies of God's people come to besiege Jerusalem and Judah together, they will instead find that this people has become a means of stumbling for them. And the imagery used is that that it will be a cup of, well, the King James says trembling, ESV says stumbling. The idea is that they will make them intoxicated so that uh, they wouldn't pass a sobriety test. And you know what's really hard to do if you're drunk is to win a fight, right? To win, an, to win a battle. Imagine an entire army of drunken soldiers going up against Jerusalem. That's the image here. Jerusalem will be like a cup of stumbling to them. And so instead of raising a glass to victory... The people will actually be made to drink the cup of God's wrath. So their attempts to attack the people of God will make them stumble as though they were drunk. And that makes it easy for Israel to defeat them. Verse 3 explains it better. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. We've all been there before, right men? Lifting something, they tell us, and we just don't believe it. Lift with your knees, not with your back. We say, I thought I was, but there goes the back. That's the idea. They're going to try.
He promises to cleanse our hearts, and that's in verse 10 and following. Let's look there together. In verse 10, God promises that he's going to bring repentance to the people. That's what's described there in verse 10, that he'll pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Now, why, why will the people plead for mercy? Pay, pay very careful attention here. This is so, so important. Uh, this is most instructive for us in our life in understanding what real repentance is, what real repentance looks like, what it is founded upon. Why are they pleading for mercy Look at verse 10. It's a plea to God for mercy on account of the ways in which they have offended him, offended God. It says, I'll pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they will mourn. When they see what they've done to me, God is saying, You see, repentance begins in seeing our sin and grieving that sin. But why do we grieve that sin? It's not because of the consequences we might experience. It's not because it hurts us. We grieve sin because it hurts God. I wanted to let that sit for a while before I give you the theological clarification. God can't be hurt by anything, of course. He's omnipotent. He's unchanging. He's all-powerful. He cannot be wounded. He cannot be offended. And yet, he represents himself as though he was someone who could be hurt and offended so that we can understand how grotesque our sin really is, so that we would understand the seriousness of it, so that we would understand the the filthiness and the odiousness of our sin. That's what the larger catechism says in the question about repentance. So that's why we read that the people will mourn on account of him whom they have pierced. God says, that's me, right? Again, verse 10. They will look on me, God says, and who is he? I am the one whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him, the one whom they've pierced. Who's that? It's God. God is saying through Zechariah, I want you to think about me and think how your sin has wounded me. How it it crushes my heart, how it breaks my heart. Calvin explains it like this. God speaks after the manner of men. In other words, he's, he's using language we can understand. So this is not a text to pull out to to get into the um, essence of God, if you want to understand uh, the being of God. That's not what this is about. It's about how God represents himself to us. And Calvin says, God speaks after the manner of men, declaring that he is wounded by the sins of his people, and especially by their obstinate contempt of his word, in the same manner as a mortal man receives a deadly wound when his heart is pierced. It's instructive for us. God's helping us understand sin by presenting himself in this way. And so then look how the mourning is described. It's it's lengthy. They shall mourn. It lists all the different families. And and then 
um, gets to verse 14 after having listed several and just says, Then all the families that are left, they'll all mourn. Everybody will mourn this. And it's described as being like the loss of a child, of a firstborn child, even a firstborn son, like losing the hope of a future uh, name for your family in those days, the dashed hopes of leaving behind a heritage. Uh, And then there's this historical comment made that the mourning will be as great, this is verse 11, as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And we all know what that means, right? No, we don't. It's okay. Uh, Most of the commentators don't either. So that always makes me feel better when I'm reading. And the commentators say, we're not really sure what's going on here. But the best guess seems to be that this is a reference to the death of King Josiah, who actually died in the plains of Megiddo. By the way, Megiddo shows up again in Revelation, talks about the great battle in the plain of Megiddo. We call it Harmageddon. That's Megiddo. That's the same. That's just a bonus for you. But this is what Second Chronicles says about the event when Josiah dies. Second Chronicles 25, 24 through 25 in the plain of Megiddo. It says that all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and the singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this very day. And they made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are to be written in the laments. Okay, so we've, we've been told that the mourning that Israel's to have over their sin, the sin that hurts God and offends God and wounds God's very heart, it's like the mourning that one would have when... Uh, if, if they had a stillborn, the death of a firstborn child, or it's the mourning, that, that, that anxiety, that fear that comes at the loss of a great king. And yet, on this very day when the people see their sin for how grievous and terrible it really is, God will cure them of that sin. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. This is all still taking place on that day. And we're told, and on that day, the day when they look upon God whom they've pierced and they mourn, on that same day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, you do know this day, don't you? It happened about 2,000 years ago. And it was when God took on what previously was just a metaphor and he made it real, where he came in flesh and blood and became one who truly could be pierced, stabbed, wounded to the heart. In the Passion narrative, it's when Jesus is struck through with the spear that John quotes, Zechariah, and this is what we read, but one of the soldiers pierced his side, and at once there came out blood and water, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth so that you may believe. May believe what? John tells us that these things took place according to the scriptures, that they would be fulfilled, that they would look on him whom they have pierced. This happened, and I'm recording it, John says, so that you know that Zechariah wasn't making anything up. Zechariah is to be believed. How does Augustus' top lady put it? Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its 
guilt and power? And do you see the mercy of God here? On that day, the day of Calvary, those things that we are waiting for and we're anticipating for on the day of judgment, the great day when we'll be when we'll come to God and we'll see him face to face, some of that is brought forward and, and, and it's established right there and right then. We get the benefits of eternity because of the day of Calvary. Do you see the mercy of God? Do you see how he is willing to cleanse us from our sin and thereby bring us back to himself? What does he have to do? He dies for us. And indeed, a firstborn son and a mighty king is fallen on that day. And those who truly know him and look upon him, their only proper response is to mourn. It's to repent. You know, the Christian loves Jesus for for who he is, for the life that he lived. The fact that he had to die, while it increases our love, should produce real grief and mourning because we've already loved him. That such a a beautiful and a gracious and a glorious Savior should have to die, that should cause us grief. And this is where true repentance begins. Thomas Watson says, Godly sorrow is chiefly for the trespass against God, so that even if there was no conscience to smite, even if there was no devil to accuse, even if there's no hell to punish, yet still the soul would be grieved because of the sin done to God. My sin is ever before me, David says in Psalm 51. David does not say, the sword threatened is ever before me, but he says, my sin, oh, that I should offend so good a God that I should grieve my comforter. This breaks my heart, Thomas Watson says. Even if, it, even if there's no hell to punish, we should still be grieved because of how much we love him, because of how beautiful he is, because of how good he is. But what a profound and compelling mystery the gospel is that the very day we pierce the heart of God because of our sin, we simultaneously open up the fountain that cleanses us from the sin of piercing his heart. That's what Zechariah is saying in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, I will open up this fountain and I will cleanse you from your sin. It's the blood of Jesus, more precious than gold or silver that saves and that sanctifies and until it beats out through an open wound and pours down on sinners like us, it can do us no good. Have you received the blood of Christ by faith today, dear sinner? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? What is your response when by faith You look upon the one whom we have pierced. Is it godly grief leading to repentance, leading to restoration, leading to a a new heart that makes you right with God? That's one option. But there's one other time that the New Testament quotes Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And it's the reaction that those who have not believed on Jesus will have when he comes again on that great 
horse. It's in Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This time it's not, it's not godly grief. It's not mourning that leads to repentance. It's a wailing that, oh, that the mountains would fall and cover us so that we did not need to deal with the wrath of the lamb whom we slaughtered. So there's two options when you look on Christ, the one who was pierced by our transgressions, to be grieved that he would have to die, and therefore you fall on your face in repentance. Or on that day you see him for the first time and it's too late. We don't want it to be that way. And there's a better way, and it begins by seeing a, a pierced Savior in whose death on account of your sin actually deals with your sin. One Puritan prayer makes this petition. At the cross may I contemplate the evil of sin and abhor it and look on him whom I pierced as one slain for me and by me. John Newton has a a line from a forgotten hymn that says, uh, with um, godly grief and mournful joy, my soul is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Or another poem puts it like this. Upon the cross of Calvary is framed a blessed mystery, and there by faith I will fix my gaze and gladly ponder all my days that God's dear Son was killed by sin. Yes, sin, not spear, had pierced his skin, and more than this, had torn apart his sterling, sweet, and sacred heart. And I, with tears and shame, must own that that spear-like sin was mine alone. But flowing now from this deep wound, a cleansing fountain I have found that purifies me from the guilt of ever having this blood spilt. Our Father, we come to you and we ask that you would grant us the godly grief that leads to repentance as we would look upon him whom we have pierced. We know that he died. He is not just represented as in Zechariah. The Lord represents himself as being one who was pierced. But truly, Jesus, the Son of God, died. He was pierced because of our sin. May we never take his death lightly. For in his death we have everything and we have life. For from the wounds that he received on the cross now flows a cleansing fountain that washes us pure from all our sin. Lord, if there are any here today who have not yet plunged themselves into that fountain, I pray that you would do a mighty work And that you would take sinners anew this moment and give them the freeing knowledge that their guilt has been removed, their stains have been removed, their sins have been removed because of the blood of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.